Looking at verses 2 and then 6 through 15. This is Matthew 26, verses 2 and 6 through 15. While you're turning there, I want you to remember a question Jesus asked. It's during Jesus' public ministry. And he pulls his disciples aside, and it's a very private moment. And he asks this question to them. He says, who do the people say I am? Who am I? And they give a number of different answers. They say Elijah, one of the prophets. And then he, he narrows the question. He takes it to a very personal level. He asks Peter. He asks his brothers. He asks his friends. But, but who do you say I am? Who am I to you? That's a very vulnerable question, isn't it? Let me cut to the chase. Jesus is interested this morning in how we answer that question as well. He wants to know what we think about him as well. What do we think about Jesus? Who is he to us? And this passage we're looking at this morning is going to tell us what we should think about Jesus. So let's look at our passage this morning. This is Matthew 26, verse 2, and 6 through 15. Friends, this is God-breathed. You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Today I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. Let's pray together. Spirit, would you take these old and timeless truths, these truths that have been the foundation of your people for a millennia, would you make them new? Would you make them fresh? Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts soft enough to comprehend. Oh, Spirit, this woman gets it. She understands. We need to understand. We need to get it too. Help us for your name and for your kingdom's sake, we pray. Amen. To begin, this was, to begin with this morning, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I want us to consider the difference between two things. I want us to consider the difference between things that are useful and things that are beautiful. Okay? What's the difference between something that's useful and something that's beautiful? Now, when I look in my own home, in my own office, I have many things to me that are useful. And perhaps because of the stage of life that Paige and I and their kids and the kids and, and where we are in our life, probably the most useful thing for us right now, I'm sorry, this is the first thing that came to my mind, is our dustbuster in the kitchen. Here's how this looks. <clears throat> it starts with breakfast. It starts with Cheerios, right? And it starts with kicks. And they always don't end up in the bowl. There's always, you know, cereal on the floor. Add to that morning snacks, which are crackers. Add to that in the afternoon snacks, which are more crackers. Okay, so by the end of the day, when dinner's done and we're cleaning up the kitchen, formed in this nice and neat little pile is, is, is this, this powderized cereal 
and crackers, right? And so the dust buster has become very useful to us because of its suction power it can clean it all up. Now, there was a season in our home when our, our first dust, bu- dust buster broke, all right, probably because of usage, all right? And it broke, and we just thought, you know, how useful, how necessary is this dust buster for us, right? So we thought we're going to go... Uh, primitive, uh, again, we're going to use a dustpan and a broom. But when you're dealing with, like, powderized cereal, you know, a dustpan can't get it all, right? And so we thought, you know, we can endure, we can do it, we can do it. And finally, we just gave in and said, no, there's nothing like a dustbuster. To be without a dustbuster is to be severely inconvenienced, is to be really uncomfortable, all right? Now, on the other hand, we have a number of things in my office and in our house that are, that are beautiful. They're not just useful, They're beautiful. You've probably heard the question before, you know, table talk question. You know, what would you do if your house was on fire, your family is safe, your pets are safe? What would you go back into your house? What would you remove uh, from your your home? What's what's beautiful to you? Yeah, I I thought of many things, probably some books. Uh, We have a painting on our living room wall that a dear friend, Robin, made for us. She gave it to us at her wedding. It's irreplaceable. Um, it, it's, um, it was a gift from a friend. Um, it, it has some significant value to us. To lose that um, wouldn't be just inconvenient. It wouldn't just be uncomfortable. It's painful, right? To lose something that's beautiful is to be pained, is to be grieved. Now, in a, this morning, what we're talking about is, is not paintings. We're not talking about dustbusters. We're talking about Jesus, And in our passage this morning, we have two characters. And one character this morning we're going to look at is is Judas. And Judas doesn't see Jesus as someone or something that's beautiful. He sees him as something that's useful. To be without Jesus is going to be slightly uncomfortable and slightly inconvenient. And so we have Judas on the one hand. And on the other hand, we have this woman. The other Gospels tell us that this woman is Mary. And that's her name. We'll talk more about her in a minute. But But to her, Jesus is not useful. To be without him is not inconvenient. To to her, Jesus is beautiful. To be without him is is to be grieved and is to be pained. And and here's where we're going. Here's where we're launching from this morning. To the Christian, to you and me, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, to us, Jesus is not useful. He's beautiful. That's the truth we're jumping from this morning. To the believer, to those who follow Christ, he's not useful. He's beautiful. Now, guys, let me pause here for just a moment. I, I don't want to lose you here. What I'm not suggesting here is that we're supposed to find Jesus physically attractive. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, I'm kind of using the old world definition here of beautiful. He's to be prized. He's to be treasured, right? That's what I mean, okay? On the same page? Well, how do I know? If I'm searching my own heart, and if I'm putting the microscope in on my own soul, how do I know if Jesus is is simply useful to me, or if he really, truly is beautiful, and we will look at this woman. We will look at Mary. She's going to show us three marks, okay? So these are three evidences. This is how you know that in your heart Jesus is beautiful. He's not just useful. He's beautiful. So if you're taking notes, here's, here's the three points this morning. And it's a bit worry. So I apologize ahead of time. Uh, point number one is his kindness propels you. That's how you know that Jesus is beautiful to you. His kindness propels you. Second, your love for him is extravagant. I try to pick the hardest words to spell this morning, right? Propel, extravagance. Okay, his, his, your love for him is extravagant. Third point, your love for him is genuine. Okay, his kindness propels you. Your love for him is extravagant and your love for him is genuine. 
Those are our three points. Okay, what do I mean? His, his kindness propels you. Well, when I was a boy, my dad bought a boat. And this is the kind of boat that you could ski off the back or you could fish off of. And there were many um, Saturday after- mornings and afternoons that my dad and I would go out on Lake Travis, which is outside of Austin, and we would, we would go fishing and skiing off this, off this boat. And there was one day in particular where the whole family, we were all together, uh, it was a Saturday afternoon, and we're tooling out across the water. We're in open water on, on Lake Travis. And, and suddenly, we just stopped dead in the water. Um, and everybody kind of looks at each other. It's like, this is really a bad place to, to be stuck, right? We're nowhere near the marina. And so after a couple minutes, you know, we're, we're troubleshooting. We're trying to figure out what's going on with the boat. I mean, the engine still revs. We've got plenty of gas. It's making noise. What's the problem? It took us a couple minutes. But what we realized is when we lifted, there's this little button that lifts the motor out of the water. When we lifted the boat out of the, out of the water, we realized the propeller had fallen off. I mean, just gone. And it's amazing how one little thing can really just really dampen your, your, your boating trip for the day. Without a propeller, you're going nowhere, right? We were dead in the water. So we did what, you know, ordinary people do. We screamed for help. And finally, a, a kind boatsman came by, and he attached a rope from uh, his boat to ours and, and towed us in. What I want to suggest this morning when we look at Mary is, is Mary is propelled by something. There is something behind her that is pushing her towards her love and respect and admiration of Jesus Christ. There's something behind her. There's something that's propelling her. And the question is, is what is it? Is this just some random woman that comes in Simon's house and just kind of goes, man, there's just something about Jesus. I don't know. I think I'll anoint him with an alabaster jar. No, there's history. There's an acute history here in, in Mary's heart. Okay, what we don't know in this passage is the name of this woman. But what we do know, because we have the Gospel of Mark, and because we have the Gospel of John, they also give an account of this story. This is, this is no ordinary Mary. This is Mary, the sister of Martha. This is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. And we all know who Lazarus is, right? This is Lazarus, friend of Jesus, who died. Remember when Lazarus died, Mary and Martha are weeping outside the tomb. And Jesus approaches, and he starts weeping too. What does Jesus do for Mary and for Martha and for Lazarus? He causes Lazarus to rise from the dead. He's embalmed. He's already wrapped up. He's in the tomb. He says, come out. He says, Lazarus, come back to life. And as great as that is, what we need to see happening here in this passage is that what Mary and Martha are getting back are their livelihoods. See, to be without your brother, to be without your father, to be without your husband is to be desolate, is to be left alone. What Jesus has done for Mary and Martha is given their livelihood back. Right? And that's why Martha does this, excuse me, Mary, that's why Mary does this beautiful thing. She's propelled. She has an acute history with Jesus. She gave, she gave her, her brother back. She got Lazarus back. What's propelling her? What's moving her towards Jesus? It's his kindness, right? That's what's moving her forward. Now, what we're meant to do in this passage, when we look at Mary, we're meant to look at Judas, too. And like, a good, like good writers do, he's going to show us that what we see in Mary is not what we're going to see in the disciples and in Judas. And the question we need to ask is, is what's propelling Judas? What's pushing him forward? Is it the Lord's kindness? Because we know that Judas has seen a number of the Lord's kindnesses, right? Judas has been around for a long time. What's propelling him? Look with me at verse, seven, at verse 15. Notice the question he asks the chief priests. What will you give me? If I deliver him over to you. 
simply put, what's propelling Judas here? He's a spiritual gold digger. Jesus is useful to Judas. Remember, Judas is the purser. He's the treasurer of the disciples, right? And John even tells us that he helped himself sometimes to the money that was in the purse. Why is Judas in relationship with Jesus? Because he gets something out of it. It's for his own selfish gain. It's for himself, right? It's not because of a kindness. He's, Judas is not looking back in his own heart and saying it's because the Lord's been kind. No, he's, who's he looking out for? He's looking out for himself. A couple questions here as we try to hone this into our own hearts. A couple diagnostic questions. When you look at your prayer life, and when you're talking with Jesus, does your prayer life resemble more a grocery list? Or does it look more like a thank you letter? Because what we want in, the, in, this, in this passage, and what this passage is telling us, is that if we love Jesus, and if he's our treasure, and if he's beautiful to us, we're compelled to him, we're drawn to him by a kindness He has done something for us, something in our past that propels us towards him, that pushes us towards him. Christians are propelled. And so when we look at our prayer life, if it resembles more of a grocery list, more of a request, or does it look more like a thank you letter? If it looks more like a thank you letter, Jesus is probably beautiful to you. If your prayer life consists of just, Lord, here's, here's what I need, you might be using Jesus. Ask the same question in another way. Why are you here this morning? Why have you come? Is there something propelling you? Is there something pushing you here this morning? Has the Lord done something in your life, in your own heart, maybe publicly or privately, that you could think of no better place to be than with Him and with His people? Are you pushed here? Or do you feel dragged? Or do you feel like you're being towed here? What do we do with this? What are we supposed to do first? Well, what did Mary do first? And it's subtle, but I want you to see this. The first thing Mary did here was she did something very simple. She remembered. Now, for the last 10 years, we've gotten to see this franchise, you know, the, the Bourne, the Jason Bourne movies come out, right? And the way these movies start is with a man who has forgotten who he was. And he's spending the, these, these rest of the movies, trying, these, these, these three movies in the trilogy, trying to figure out and remember who he is. Who am I? And what I think this passage is, is asking us to do and what it's warning us against is, is don't we, like Judas, suffer from some spiritual amnesia at times? We forget our past. We all have acute pasts with the Lord. And what I'm speaking of specifically this morning is Calvary. And it's what we're celebrating today and leading up to and what we're going to celebrate next week. Is that the Lord was extravagant towards us. He was incredibly kind towards us. He took upon himself the guilt and shame so that we might have the Lord's smile. He took our sin upon him so that we might have his righteousness. And don't we forget that? Don't we kind of suffer from this spiritual amnesia at times? If we do, you know what it leads to? It leads to using Jesus. Judas forgot. How do you use Jesus? How do you avoid Jesus from being something beautiful in your own mind, in your own heart? Do this one simple thing. Forget. Just forget. But Mary's not going to forget. Mary remembers. What does she remember? She remembers that the Lord was kind to her, kind to her family. She gave, he gave her a livelihood back through her brother. 
What does remembering look like for you and for me? This is going to be cheesy, I know, but take it, adopt it, twist it, and make it your own. Do something like this. This will help you remember. Have you ever gotten to Thanksgiving and you're like, okay, this is supposed to be the holiday where, you know, this thankfulness just kind of wells up within us. And you're halfway through the turkey and you're just kind of going, I don't feel it. I don't feel thankful. Try this. Take a box. And at the top of it, just, just cut a slit. Okay? And anytime you see the Lord doing something for you, that's a kindness. That, that's, a, that's a mercy. Maybe it's an answer to a prayer request. Maybe it was something you didn't even pray for, but you recognize it as the Lord's kindness towards you. Write it on a piece of paper. Put the date on it. Fold it up. Put it in the box. Keep doing that every time the Lord does that in your own heart and in your own life. And then on Thanksgiving, open it up. Read them all. Remember. Celebrate what the Lord has done for you. And let that propel you. Let that push you towards a greater love for Christ. We're supposed to remember. All right. His kindness propels us. But here's another mark. Here's how we know that... that that Christ is beautiful to us, that he's our treasure and he's our prize. Our love for him is extravagant, okay? Now, back in the 1700s, or excuse me, the 17th century, uh, there was an Indian print, uh, emperor, uh, and this is not like Native American, this is like Middle East Indian. His wife, his, his beloved and dear wife passed away. And he was so grieved and so distraught that he built this mausoleum uh, for her and he spared no expense. He brought in different architects. Um, he, he, he adorned it with gold and with jewels. It is now one of the seven man-made wonders of the world. We call it the Taj Mahal. It was extravagant, and it was for his love. And what we're meant to see in this passage, too, is that Mary's love and expression towards Jesus isn't just an ordinary love. It's extravagant. Well, how do we, how do we see that? How do we understand that? When Jonathan Edwards taught on this passage, he calls this... Mary's remarkable act. We're calling it in in the same vein this morning, Mary's extravagant act. How is this extravagant? Well, she takes this alabaster jar. And again, another strange word coming out this morning. It's called nard, this this ointment, right? And this is not a common household item. We don't know where they got it, how they got it. But here's what John and the the apostles tell us uh, this thing is worth. They say it's worth about 300 denarii, which means um, that's about a year's salary. So here's how that plays out. Let's say their house is being burned down. Let's say they're they're about to be pillaged by, you know, a foreign enemy, right? Or an earthquake happens and they lose it all. If they grab this one alabaster jar, if they get out with this and this alone, they're set. They're fine for a year. They can get back on their feet, all right? This is their nest egg. This is their 401. This is their security, What does Mary do with their security? First, she takes it, and what the disciples tell us is she breaks it. Okay? So first and foremost, this alabaster jar is done. It can't be repaired. They don't have super glue. It's over. Okay? The jar itself is done. And typically what you do in this situation is if you're, you know, practicing hospitality and and someone is eating at your table, you know, you would do one of two things. You would have washed their feet as they walked in, and because they didn't have showers or baths, Conveniences, things that are useful to us like we have now, um, they would take some of this perfume and they would anoint the people having dinner after the meal because it's the end of the day. And we all know that locker room you know, phenomenon, right? You get a whole bunch of sweaty guys in a room together, it starts to really smell, okay? And so you, you take this ointment and you, and you 
anoint um, someone's head so that they smell this instead of the, the body odor. But that's not what Mary does. Mary walks in, and here's, here's what she does. Here's what the disciples tell us. She breaks the jar, and she doesn't anoint Jesus. She pours and empties this, in, in this, this entire flask down Jesus' body from head to toe. The whole thing, it's gone. Okay? She doesn't uncork it and just dab a little bit. It's gone. What is Mary communicating here? Something that was my security uh, is now worthless, right? This was our nest egg. This was my security. And, And now, compared to Jesus, this is really nothing. Why? Because now Jesus is my security. Jesus is my nest egg. If, she, if he can bring Lazarus back to life, if he has power over death, he can do anything. He is now my security. To put it another way, Christians, if we're truly in Christ and Christ is our security, we can afford to be extravagant because everything he gives us can never be taken away. And our security is in him, right? It's not in our own nest egg. It's not in our own 401k. But notice here the the disciples' response. And notice Judas' response, verses 8 and 9. Look back at the passage with me. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor. Two things to note here. Um, In the original language, it says here they... uh, um, they growl, they snarl at this woman. They look at what she's doing. They're looking at this extravagance, this act of faith on her behalf. She's telling Jesus, you are my security. It's not this jar. You are my security. And the disciples, of all people, go, hmm. Point being is when you put your security in Christ and when you put your trust in him and when you're extravagant towards him, you know what the world's going to do You know what they're going to do towards you? They're going to laugh. They're going to say, you are a fool. Be prepared for that. But notice what else they do. And I need to be short here. They take a good thing, right? Giving to the poor, something that we're still supposed to be doing and about, taking care of the poor. They take a good thing and make it the thing. They say, this is what we should be doing. I mean, she is wasted. She's being incredibly wasteful here. She's being incredibly foolish. This could have been sold and given to the poor. You see what they're missing here? You see why this is such a beautiful act? Why what Mary here is doing is the right thing? She's saying, you are my security, God. Not my behavior. Not my obedience. Christ is our security. Notice what Judas does in verse 15, the last part of verse 15. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. What is Jesus worth to Judas? 30 pieces of silver. This is what you would pay to free a common slave. Barely a third of Mary's offering, comparatively speaking. Jesus is useful uh, to Judas, but to Mary, uh, he's beautiful. All right. What about us? How do we make this land in our own heart? Well, you've heard of this, perhaps now, this, this new southern tradition. It may not be new. It's probably been around for a long time, but it's called pounding, Right? It's where someone from out of state or out of our community moves into our community and they're pounded, which means our community goes and, and buys a pound of everything, a pound of sugar, a pound of flour, a pound of you know, ground beef, right? 
And, and so when these people move into this new community, you know, they already find their, uh, their pantry and the refrigerator and, and the freezer full of food, right? It's extravagant, right? It's called pounding. Well, what I think this passage is inviting us to do this morning or asking us uh, to ask of our own hearts is, is, have we pounded Christ? Have we been reckless towards Christ? Have we been extravagant towards Christ? Because if, if we believe what we believe about Jesus, that he is our security, that there is nothing in this world that can give us greater security than he gives us, right? Power over death, the life everlasting. What, what do we have that compares to that? When was the last time you were extravagant towards Jesus? You know, we call ourselves conservative in the political sphere. You see what Jesus is, is showing us here? He says, here, now, in this moment, this is where you need to be a little liberal. This is where you be reckless. This is where you cut loose. This is where you, where you, you act before you think. If Christ is your security, nothing holds power over you. Nothing here on this earth is your, your security. There is no nest egg here. There is no 401k here. Our 401k, our nest egg is with Christ himself. When was the last time you were extravagant? When was the last time you were reckless before Christ? We're invited to be reckless. We're invited to be extravagant, just in the right ways, towards Jesus. I don't know how that looks for you. I don't know where you find your particular security. I invite you to ask that question of your own heart this morning. I don't know exactly what that is, but I do know this. I know that you'll never be extravagant towards Jesus unless you find your security in him. It'll always be calculated. It will always be measured, and it'll always be safe. You will never be reckless before Jesus unless he is your security. Okay? Last point is this. Our love for him will be, uh, will be genuine. It won't be based on proximity. It won't be based on quantity. It'll be based on quality. Okay, now what do I mean by this? You've heard the old adage, right? Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades, right? Close doesn't count in the kingdom of God. Okay, what do I mean? I want us to answer the question, Who? A beautiful act is being done. And Jesus says, not only is this act beautiful, but in the history of the church for its, its life, um, what this woman has done uh, for Jesus will be spoken of in a good light. Um, it's recorded in, in Matthew. It's recorded in Mark. It's recorded in John. Like this woman is going down in history for all the right reasons. Who in this passage is the one that gets it? It's this woman. It's Mary. And here's where you start to see a little bit of the irony of this passage, okay? Consider this. Uh, these disciples have already been with Jesus now for about three years, Judas included. They've gotten to see things like the feeding of the 5,000, which was miraculous, right? This miraculous feeding of the 5,000. They've gotten to see the lame walk, the blind see, those with demon possession, these demons being cast out. They've gotten to see some pretty incredible things. And we would assume at this point, if a beautiful thing is going to be done for Jesus, if someone's going to get it, if the light bulb's going to go off over someone's head, it's going to, probably going to be one of the disciples, right? No, here's the irony. Who is it? Number one, it's, 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 it's a woman. And now, get up above this passage for just one second here. There are 12 men here who have been with Jesus for three years, and they don't get it yet. 
But here's a woman, right, who in that society was like a second-class citizen. She couldn't even testify in court. She's the one who gets it. You see what Jesus here is doing? He's leveling the playing field. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. She has a limited exposure to Jesus compared to that of the disciples too, right? The disciples had three years where Jesus walked, they walked. Where he ate, they ate. Where he slept, they slept. Comparatively speaking, we have the disciples over here and we got Mary down here. Very limited exposure to Jesus, but it's enough. She recognizes his kindness towards her. And how does she respond? Extravagantly. She realizes her security is in Jesus and nothing else. And Jesus says, not only is this a beautiful thing, but this will be remembered as long as there are humans on this earth. It's going in three of the four Gospels. She gets it. Now, what does this mean for us? I want to encourage you, and then I want to offer a warning. Here's the encouragement. Some of you are in this room, and your experience with Jesus is very limited perhaps within the last week, perhaps within the last month. And for you to walk in this room and see other people who have been baptized, who've been catechized as as children, who who know theology backwards and forwards, who know their gospels, who who knows their Bible verses, for you to walk in this room, you you feel intimidated because you, you haven't been around Jesus that long. But you recognize that he's been kind towards you. And you've taken steps to be extravagant towards you. Here's what you need to hear. That's enough. That's a beautiful thing. It's not quantity that Jesus is looking at. It's quality. He's looking at your heart. Are you compelled by my kindness? And do you find your security in me? If you've only done that for a week, it's okay. You're okay. But for, rest, for the rest of us, myself included, this comes. This is a very dire warning. We're all prone to this fallacy, this fallacy of proximity. We make assumptions based on our geography. We've been here for a really long time. We know a lot of stuff. I can sing perfect harmony. I know how you're going to land this plane, Jake. I know where you're going with it. I see it coming. But if it's true that the disciples who were with Jesus for three years, if at this point they still, did, still don't get it, couldn't the same be true for you and for me? That's why this is a warning. He's saying close, close isn't going to cut it here. You've got to recognize my kindness. And that's, that's what will propel you towards these extravagant acts. It's not proximity. It's not quantity. It's quality. Do you have quality? That's why my mentor in college, as he told us, you know, back in the day, he was was a pastor seven years before he became a follower of Christ. He said, I was close. I was really close. He said, I was a pastor for seven years before I really reconciled with God, before I really understood what the gospel message was. And if that's true of him, and if that's true of the disciples, can't it be true of us? Aren't these questions we have to be asking ourselves? Beware the fallacy of proximity and geography. Um, well, I want to close with this. Where's the good news? Um, there's a story in Acts chapter 5 
This is after this event where the church is exploding. Uh, Peter and Paul are, you know, kind of being some of the major spokesmen for this this new movement uh, of Christianity and the new world. And there's this couple, uh, and they decide that they're going to sell this parcel of land. And they're going to get the proceeds towards the church. Um, they're going to be useful uh, in the kingdom. And what they decide to do is, is sell the, uh, the property privately and keep the price quiet so that when they give the money to the church, they can skim a little bit off the top and keep some for themselves. You may remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They're, they're betraying the church, and these, these people that they've locked arms with. You remember what happens to them? They drop dead. I'm not talking about days later. I'm not talking about weeks later. Peter is talking with Ananias, and he says, why? And it's, the text says that he breathes his last breath and dies, expires. He goes to Sapphira, asks the same question, why? She breathes her last breath and dies on the spot. It was immediate. Now step back into our passage for just a moment. We don't have a man and a woman betraying or selling out you know, a group of people uh, that we call the church. We have an individual, someone who's very, very close to Jesus. Not betraying the disciples, but betraying Jesus. Selling him for 30 pieces of silver, and we're going, how come he gets to live? Why is he still breathing? Why doesn't he drop dead? Okay, he's not cheating the church, he's cheating Jesus. If there was ever an occasion for an immediate death, boom, lightning strike, it would be this. Right? Why is Judas alive? Well, the answer is this. It's the same reason why you and I are still alive. He's giving you and I opportunity to look at the Lord and say, I've been doing it wrong my whole life. You know what we call that? We call that repentance. Lord, I've been using you. You've been useful to me. You haven't been beautiful to me. I need you to change my heart. I, I need to believe in the kindness that you've offered towards me. I need to believe in the, kind, in the mercy that you, you have granted me. Because right now I feel like I'm just using you. Why are we still breathing? Why is Judas still alive at this moment? Because the Lord is kind. He's giving us opportunity to look at this passage and repent. To see his kindness. And to make him our treasure. To be beautiful to us. I pray that true in in you. I pray that true in my own heart. My children's heart. So collectively as a church, we can offer beautiful things for our Lord. Because he is beautiful. Not just useful. He's beautiful. Let's pray together. Spirit, would you grant us perhaps a few moments of discomfort and the quietness of our own hearts so that we might have an eternity of security. Father, if there be any doubt within our own hearts of whether we think you beautiful or just simply useful, be kind enough to show us. And may that be the kindness that spurs us on, that propels us to see you as that that beautiful thing, our treasure, our security, our love. Make that true in us. Father, for only you can. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.